Namaste and good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, my name is Samir Kalra. I'm the Managing Director at the Hindu American Foundation. On behalf of all of us at the Hindu American Foundation, we're very thankful that you could join us uh, to hear from our panel of medical experts on this very important topic that we are all facing at this time. Uh, we have a wonderful panel organized for you this evening. Uh, before we get started, though, I just wanted to go over a few housekeeping items. Uh, the first thing is, is that we will have time to answer questions towards the end of the uh, webinar. Uh, please use the question and answer function at the bottom of your Zoom screen. We will only be monitoring questions coming in through that function. Uh, unfortunately, due to the large number of participants, we won't be able to monitor the chat function or the hand raising function as well. So please just funnel any questions that you may have through the question and answer session. You can do that at any point during the evening and then we'll go ahead and share those with the panel. Um, unfortunately, again, due to the large number of panels, we won't be able to get to all questions. We will do our best to get to as many as possible or clump together questions that have similar topics. Um, you'll feel free to reach out to us after the webinar if you didn't get your question answered, and we'd be happy to get back to you. Um, I also wanted to just clearly state that uh, we, although we are joined by medical experts, nothing on this webinar constitutes medical advice. For any medical advice, please con consult your own physician and please follow the advice of your local county and state health officials. Um, again, we have a wonderful panel here, but they are not giving advice this evening. Um, I also wanted to note that uh, we will be muting everybody during this panel um, and we will unmute the panelists as they are introduced. But for, in terms of the participants, due to the large number, we won't be able to unmute anybody else. With that, I'd like to also thank our sponsors. We are very fortunate to get two sponsorships for this evening's webinar. The first is from Dr. Anita Joshi and Dr. Arun Jain from Carmel, Indiana who sponsored this uh, webinar this evening, along with Subhash and Sarojini Gupta from Sugarland, Texas. So thank you both to them for being as generous as they were to help sponsor our programming this evening. And with that, I wanna go ahead and introduce our moderator for this evening. Uh, we're very honored to be joined by Dr. Asim Shukla. Dr. Shukla is a co-founder and former board member of the Hindu American Foundation, where he's been instrumental in shaping HF's strategic vision. Dr. Shukla is also a pediatric urologist and director of minimally invasive surgery in the Department of Urology at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and is an associate professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Asim, Dr. Shukla, for uh, moderating the panel for us this evening, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Samir. Uh, namaste, everyone. Welcome uh, to this uh, Hindu American Foundation webinar. Um, it, are it is times like these, uh, this global pandemic, that we're really reminded of our interconnectedness to each other. Uh, and just like many of you probably in the audience, many of us physicians are also here at home, uh, sheltering in place, uh, but many of us are in the hospital uh, because the patient's uh, emergencies, the needs continue to rise. Um, as many of us physicians on the HAF board uh, as we were thinking of how we can serve our community the idea came that certainly a uh, very one very important way is to bring some of our collective expertise to bear uh, in order to share with the community and to connect with the community and interface uh, in a way that we can uh, sort of share best practices and get um, uh, 
some of the many questions that are out there in the community answered. Um, so I want to take this moment again um, uh, to, first of all, you're going to hear a lot of information today. Uh, we have the next hour in which we're going to discuss this. We're expecting somewhere near 1,000 people that are going to be on this call. Uh, so that's why it's very important that we, strict, uh, that we stay strict to the uh, rules that Samir has laid out for us. One very important motivating factor for us, uh, many of us being in the Indian community, knowing about WhatsApp, uh, is the information that many of you are seeing on WhatsApp, that you're hearing through rumors. Uh, it's very important to try to dispel that and to bring uh, this expertise uh, here today uh, together. But as always, even after what you hear today, please do know about the CDC website, www.cdc.gov for official information about the COVID-19 outbreak, the World Health Organization website as well. You should also know that you can bookmark your local state health department uh, uh, websites. Here in Philadelphia, where, where I live, uh, we get texts, uh, for example, from the city on any changes in school closure policies, uh, impact on the local community businesses and things like that. So please do keep that in mind as well. Uh, and once again, uh, we are uh, run by lawyers, so it's very important that I once again restate that this is not uh, what you're being given here today is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. If you're ill, if you're not feeling well, uh, please do contact your own physician uh, and then work through the system. And now I'd like to get right into our program. Um, I know that a big reason there are a thousand people on this call is because of the next guest who is uh, who we are very fortunate to have join us. And that is, of course, the Surgeon General, the former Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. Uh, as, as official as a bio as I could give for Vivek, I'm really going to give my, my own bio because I've known Vivek, uh, Dr. Murthy, for 40 years now. Uh, I knew him as a young man playing the Mudangam in our Miami Pudgeon group uh, growing up in South Florida. Uh, I watched him go through high school. Uh, he started an HIV AIDS outreach group serving India, even while he was still in high school. I followed him as he, well, I followed his progress as he went to Harvard for his undergraduate education and then on to Yale for medical school. Uh, from Yale, he went right back to Harvard for his internal medicine residency and then started serving the community in different public service endeavors uh, until, uh, and not surprisingly, he was appointed by President Obama as perhaps the youngest Surgeon General in history. Uh, his superlative trajectory has been built on incredible intelligence. His true call that I know very well to be a healer and really an uncanny commitment to public service. And so I would like to now ask Vivek, uh, to, I would like to introduce you all to Dr. Vivek Murthy uh, and give him the floor. Uh, Dr. Murthy's time is limited. As you've seen, he's on CNN, MSNBC, on every station right now. He's in high demand. He's taking this time for us. We're going to be very respectful of his time. He'll give a short uh, talk. And after that, we will see if there's any time for a few questions before he has to run off to his next engagement. So Vivek, if you can hear me, thank you so much. Welcome to the HAF webinar and to our community, and thank you for taking this time, Dr. Murthy. Uh, thanks so much, Asim. I appreciate the uh, very warm introduction and appreciate your efforts to 
have this call to help uh, people learn more about this uh, unusual and very difficult time that we're in with the novel coronavirus. I know that there's a, a lineup of many wonderful speakers here who have great information to share with everyone. Uh, I just want to take a little bit of time to share some information on a few points that seem thought would be helpful for the group to hear about from a public health perspective. Uh, so let me just start with why this is a, a public health emergency and why this is different also from past epidemics and outbreaks that we've seen uh, before. One of the most common questions I sometimes get is, is this just the flu? Or is this just a bad version of the flu? And the truth is, this is not the flu. Um, and there are a few key things that are different about this particular virus. Uh, this virus is more contagious than the flu. Uh, and there are statistical ways to determine that based on how many people uh, an infected individual will spread uh, the, uh, you know, their, their infection to. In the case of the flu, for example, on average, any individual who has the flu will spread it to 1.3 people on average. Uh, in the case of this infection, this novel coronavirus, which is also called COVID-19, uh, they spread it to an average of 2.2 people, somewhere between two and three is the range. So it's significantly more contagious. The second difference is that it's significantly more deadly. And that's tracked by something called the case fatality rate or the CFR. Uh, the number of people uh, who die who have the flu in the United States ranges around one in a thousand. So that's a case fatality rate of 0.1%. In the case of, of COVID-19, it looks like the, the actual case fatality rate is probably 10 times higher than that, and quite possibly even higher. Um, but you know, regardless of how you cut it, even by conservative measures, it seems like it's about 10 times uh, deadlier than the flu. But there's a third reason that this is somewhat different, which isn't covered so much in the news, but has real implications, especially for healthcare systems and providers which has to do with how many people need hospitalization uh, who have COVID-19 infection. Now, with the flu on any given year, it's somewhere between 1% and 2% of people who get the flu who will need to be hospitalized, um, around 1.5% on average. In the case of COVID-19 infection, it's somewhere between 15 to 20% of people who actually require hospitalization. Uh, that's a massive increase. So even if you have the same number of people who had both the infections, the, your hospital systems would be much, much uh, more engaged and, and burdened in a sense with, uh, with COVID infection and with the flu. So this is why when you put these three factors together, you see so much concern about COVID-19 infection. And that concern is now no longer theoretical because if we look around the world, what we've seen is that there are countries that are ahead of us in the sense that they took on the epidemic first. Uh, China for sure, and where we're, this started as far as we can tell, uh, but also South Korea, Italy, and, and other countries have experienced their first cases and have seen the dramatic upsurge in infections that we are just at the beginning uh, of experiencing here in the United States. Uh, a word about what's happening in the United States. So you have to look first that you're seeing in the news uh, with a bit of a grain of salt. You know, we have now crossed 8,000 infections in the United States. The numbers are are just ratcheting up by the hour. Each day, we're seeing more and more new cases, as well as more and more deaths from the virus. Um, and this is, we should expect this to continue, um, and for two reasons. One is because we had a, a severe issue with uh, testing uh, in the beginning of this crisis. We did not have enough tests. 
We still don't have enough tests in many parts of the country. And so because of under-testing, we were under-detecting. And so there, people are trying to ask me, well, how many more cases are there out there than what we're actually registering right now because of the under-testing? And the estimates range from five times more cases to 10 times more cases on the more conservative side to many more uh, cases. So if we have about 8,000 plus cases, it's quite possible we have more than 80,000 in reality in the United States. But the other reason that you see the numbers going up is because there is true spread of the infection happening. Uh, and so we have to recognize that in the coming days, uh, probably over the next week or two, we should expect as more testing comes online and as the virus just naturally spreads more, that we will see those numbers really skyrocket. And the question then is, what are we going to do about that? What are the implications of that? Well, obviously, the implication we care about the most is that people will get sick and in many cases may actually pass away given the high fatality rate, which seems to be around 1%. The other concern we have is that the hospital systems will be overburdened. If you look at what our ICU capacity is in the United States, if you look at what our ventilator supply is in our hospitals, uh, these numbers do not seem to comport with what we would need if this was a moderate to a severe epidemic. So just to give you one example of that, um, depending on what numbers you look at, we have somewhere between 45 to 60,000 intensive care unit beds in the United States. In uh, even a moderate epidemic, not a severe, but a moderate projection, we would need about 200,000 ICU beds uh, in the U.S. So we have nowhere near uh, that amount in surge capacity. Uh, and already what we are seeing is that there are hospitals that are starting to see surges uh, of patients coming into the ER with COVID-19 symptoms. Um, their hospitals are starting to struggle with bed space and with ventilators. And numerous, numerous doctor's offices and hospitals across the country are having to reuse masks uh, because they've run out of masks. They're running out of gowns and gloves. So the it, these materials are becoming incredibly hard to get. I mean, just on a very personal level, my dad and my sister, who are primary care doctors uh, in Miami, where Asim and I grew up, um, they themselves have had an incredibly hard time getting masks. And so they've had to see patients without being able to protect themselves because there's such a run on the supply. So I mentioned all of this just to, uh, to illustrate why it is that people are taking such aggressive action to address this virus because it has the potential to cost us dearly in terms of lives to overburden uh, our hospital system. And if that happens, the latter, then we will see what we're seeing in Italy right now. Uh, which is doctors having to make decisions about who to actually admit to an ICU bed, knowing that they only have one bed for two patients who are sick. And and this is happening all over Italy, and it, it's truly heartbreaking. The last thing I want to say, and there's a lot more we could say about it, but I know you've got uh, a long list of wonderful speakers, so I don't want to take any more time away from them. Uh, but the last thing I just want to touch on is what we should be doing, uh, all of us, to protect ourselves, but also our loved ones and people around us uh, from COVID-19 infection. And one of the reasons this is really tough uh, to figure out is that we are, this virus and get a handle on it is that we're learning more and more about it every day. These questions about, you know, are asymptomatic people infection? Well, it seems like they actually are, but for how many days prior to infection or for how many days afterward, like all of these questions are still murky right now. We're still trying to understand like the fine details of it. And given everything we do know, though anything we do know tells us that this is this is severe 
this is dangerous. It's already wreaked havoc in other countries, and it's already starting to do so here. So we've got to act quickly. Now, if we try to do what other countries did, that were able to get a handle on this virus, like China and Taiwan and South Korea, what we would do uh, if we followed their model is we would test very broadly to understand what's happening throughout the population. Uh, we would aggressively trace contacts, you know, especially at the early stage. And then we would implement what are called aggressive mitigation measures, uh, where we severely limit uh, physical interaction between people, since that's their primary mode of spread. Because this virus, as many of you have read, is very similar to the flu in a lot of, in terms of how it's spread. Uh, you know, it's spread through, you know, respiratory droplets uh, most often. Um, when people sneeze, you know, then the droplets get on their hand or on a hard surface. Somebody else touches that, and if they touch their face, uh, particularly their mouth, uh, eyes, or nose, then the virus can get in uh, through that means. Very similar to the flu. And the symptoms are also can be quite similar, too, uh, with fever and cough and body ache, and particularly with shortness of breath, which is more common with the COVID-19 infection. Uh, but So given that it spreads in that manner, um, what many of these countries have done is to really uh, push very hard on these severe mitigation measures, including quarantining people in their homes. Um, I mention this because we are now at a stage, because we have many more infections than we think, uh, in part because we've had these severe testing issues, and because we didn't uh, really act early enough in the epidemic the way some of these other countries did, we have to rely even more heavily on these mitigation efforts uh, to ensure that we are doing what we can to slow the spread of the virus so that we can buy ourselves time. And buying ourselves time means that we can shore up our hospital capacity. It means that we can buy a little more time to work on a therapeutic because right now there is no medicine that cures uh, the coronavirus. And we clear about that. There's nothing that that treats you know, and, and cures the coronavirus. There's only symptomatic care right now and support. And so buying time will give us hopefully a better chance to find something that could work. A vaccine would be ideal, but that would like those trials are underway, but it'll likely take 18 months uh, to develop a vaccine. So the measures that really help and that I just want to leave all of you with are personal hygiene measures uh, involving washing your hands uh, rigorously, making sure that you're washing for at least 20 seconds you know, at a time, that certainly when you go outside, when you come back in, making sure that you're washing uh, and certainly if you're going to go outside to the grocery store to get food uh, or if you have to go to the doctor's office uh, to get care, make sure that when you're out, you do not touch your face because that's the primary port uh, of infection. Um, also change how you greet people uh, instead of shaking hands, instead of hugging people, you know, moving to just a hand on the heart or uh, an amaste to them is, is going to be much better uh, than actually touching them. And in terms of your actual outward interaction with others, uh, for, we should presume at this point, uh, given how contagious this is and how little we know, we should behave as if we have the virus in the sense that we should limit our interaction with other people. Uh, we should uh, avoid going to crowded places like restaurants or bars and certainly to large group events like concerts or games. Many of these have been canceled already, but in case you are in a place that has not canceled these kind of outings, I would avoid uh, those types of interactions. And even, you know, getting together with groups of friends, you know, for a dinner party, you know, with your kids, uh, you know, that's a normal thing that a lot of us do and look forward to doing. But that's just, in this time, this, that's not something we should do uh, for the next 
period of time while we're trying to get a handle uh, on this virus. If these seem like severe and almost draconian measures, they are. Uh, this is something that we've not had to do in this country, uh, perhaps ever. We've also not seen a pandemic like this, uh, probably since 1918, since the Spanish flu. So this is unprecedented territory for us. And the truth is, we don't know how long it will last. Uh, China remained in this kind of lockdown for two months. Uh, and they're just now beginning to open up businesses again. And they just now took down all 16 hospitals that they had to build to accommodate per, uh, patients. Uh, but keep in mind, we are acting a bit later than China. So it would, would not be surprising if we needed more than two months uh, of severe change in our behavior and interaction with others in our lifestyle to really get a handle on this virus. So time will tell, um, but that's a snapshot of what the virus is, of why people are so extraordinarily concerned about it. And that's why we are being urged uh, to take these severe mitigation measures. So let me stop there and I'll turn it back over to Asim and Suhan. Yep, thank you, Vivek. Uh, thank you so much for, for that time. Do you have uh, a few minutes or if you need to go, we completely understand and we'll move on. Uh, if you have time for, uh, for two questions. Uh, sure, go ahead. Okay, okay one question uh, that's come up a few times here on the chat is why uh, is the United States so far behind on um, testing? Is there something systemic that you know from your experience as to why we fell so far behind in having enough test kits uh, in order to test a larger percentage of our population? And the second question, so you can just answer them together and then you are free, is uh, do you have a message for India? There are a lot of Indian Americans uh, on here and they're hearing from India that, uh, oh, we're gonna be fine. Uh, they, they seem to be taking it lightly in India. So do you have a message uh, to send uh, that way? So those are the two questions, why we fell behind here in terms of having enough test kits on hand as compared to other countries as a percentage of population. And what would be your message to tell people or their relatives in India? Well, great questions, uh, Asim. Uh, the first one I can only partially answer because the truth is nobody entirely knows uh, what happened with this testing debacle. I mean, presumably some people know within government, but um, you know, on the outside, what we do know is a couple of things went wrong early on uh, that we chose not to use the uh, sort of test that the WHO had offered. We, uh, the, what we ended up sending to state labs from the federal government ended up being uh, problematic. It didn't work and that solution had to be rejiggered. We also know that the distribution, uh, uh, the production and distribution of tests uh, to state labs was, uh, seemed to be quite slow. And ultimately, there was a massive backlog uh, such that people couldn't, couldn't get care. There were mayors uh, who were telling me uh, that their city and, in fact, their entire state of millions and millions of people only had 100 tests they could, they could process in a given day, and they would take four or five days to come back. Uh, and still, even today, many states are struggling with that. So listen, we don't 100% know why this happened, but it is true, though, in the past that we have been able to send out tests from the government quickly. In the case of H1N1, uh, for example, which is also known as swine flu, uh, in that case, within two weeks of the first infection, uh, the federal government shipped over a million tests uh, to state labs and other labs all across the country. So. To some extent, um, you know, this is not that we've never, ever sent a large number of tests out before from the government, um, but a series of things uh, ended up going wrong here. And um, 
you know, it's still a mystery uh, what exactly that was. To your second point, though, I, I do want to say, though, that there is now uh, a ramp up of tests that's happening. And, you know, there has been more collaboration with the private sector to really push out these tests. Some private labs like Quest uh, are, are doing uh, these tests as well. It will still take time uh, for them to ramp up. We still don't have enough availability, but uh, the hope is that day by day that the testing will become easier. <clears throat> and finally, to your question about India, um, you know, I have seen some of the numbers on India. I have not been tracking it rigorously every day, um, but a few days ago I did see that case numbers were low in India. Um, and quite frankly, I don't believe those. Um, I think that there are re the part of the reason the number of cases is low is I just don't think we're testing enough uh, in India. And I'm worried. Uh, I'm really worried because this is not the kind of virus that you take lightly and that you say, oh, you know, this is not a problem or it's not going to affect us and you move on. Uh, this is the which countries that have done that uh, have suffered greatly. And the way to deal with this virus is to be proactive and to act early to test broadly, to ensure you understand what's actually happening uh, in terms of where this sort you know, where infection is localizing and then to aggressively uh, both quarantine in those cases, but also trace contacts so that you can understand how and where the infection is spreading. Those are the tried and true public health measures that you have to implement early. And the other thing though that this highlights, and not just for India, but also for the US and for many countries, is it highlights gaps in our healthcare system. Like when we don't have a, a system that has the capacity to surge quickly in terms of availability of beds, materials, but also healthcare workers in terms of personnel, um, then we're not prepared for moments like this. In China, what they were able to do is they were able to build whole hospitals uh, within days, which is an extraordinary thing. And it was incredibly important to them because they had such a massive influx of patients. And that is something we're just starting to mobilize around here in the United States. But I worry about India as well in terms of its both the speed of the public health response, how seriously this is being taken, but also the surge capacity. And these challenges are not unique to India. Um, but I do think that this is, this is a virus you do not want to take lightly. And just because you do not you know, have a lot of positive tests does not mean that the virus is not there in the community and that it's not going to ultimately show up you know, in the form of Increase emergency room visits, you know, ultimately, and overburdened hospitals and uh, a population that's uh, too sick to finally get your hands around. And, and so I think that's what, if I was speaking to the Indian government, what I would urge them to do is to, is to mobilize now to run the risk of overreacting rather than underreacting, because literally lives depend on it. Great. Thank you, uh, Vivek. Uh, these are, you know, uh, very, very uh, important observations. Um, and I think we were all hanging on every word, uh, especially coming from you. I know you have a, you have a lot of commitments uh, this time, and you're, you're in high demand. We want to thank you so much from uh, HAF uh, and uh, certainly myself personally for having taken this time with us. And, and I will let you go. Um, and uh, just so everyone listening knows that what uh, Vivek just said, uh, Dr. Murthy just said, and what you'll hear for the rest of this next half hour will be recorded and will be shared uh, so you can access later and share with all of your friends and relatives. Thank you again, Dr. Murthy, and uh, good night. Uh, namaste. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone.
Okay, next, uh, we're going to go, uh, that, that was uh, really quite a, quite a treat for us to, for, to have that time. Uh, but I'm very proud uh, that uh, some of our HAF leadership uh, has uh, important expertise in this area. And really, we can bring that expertise to bear uh, in our conversation now. And next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Lavanya Pandit. Uh, in her quote-unquote spare time, Lavanya is uh, active with HAF's Houston chapter uh, and plays a very important role there. But by day, she's an assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care and sleep medicine at the uh, prestigious Baylor University, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and is a full-time staff physician at the Michael DeBakey Veterans Hospital and Medical Center in Houston. So I'm going to ask Lavanya to kind of uh, speak about COVID, really what COVID is uh, and what it actually does to us. Uh, Dr. Lavanya Pandit. All right, great. Thanks, Asim. And uh, yeah, after such a thorough and precise point-by-point -point discussion of COVID-19 by Dr. Morthy, I'll try to not repeat so much and again, focus on the basics regarding uh, specifically what I do as a lung specialist. So COVID is uh, actually a large family, uh, part of a large family of diseases called the coronavirus. That's where it got its name. And coronavirus is actually not new to us. We've actually been introduced to other members of the family before. Uh, they had other names known as SARS in 2003 and MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, in 2012. So this is not a new virus family. However, what happened is in December of 2019, uh, a mutation happened to the virus and they epidemiologically can link this to a seafood and wild animal market in the Wuhan region of China. And the virus was subsequently you know, cloned and found to have this mutation that makes it more virulent in human beings. So it got a new name, this new member of the coronavirus family, COVID-19. Subsequently, we all know the trajectory, how it spread from China to other countries across the world. And when it arrived in the United States, we all got word of it. Now here, the first human to human transmission was described in the United States in January of 2020, which made it significant because that means we can spread it to each other, which is why we're seeing all of these ramping up measures now. Um, the clinical progression of the disease, we all, heard a lot about what Dr. Morthy said, folks present with fevers, shortness of breath, cough, which is really very similar to a whole host of other respiratory viruses that we mm -hmm. all come down with during this time of the year, including the flu. But with this virus, we believe it's far more uh, transmissible. We don't know why, possibly because of that mutation, but because of this uh, transmissibility or the ability for us to spread it to each other, we need to remain diligent and stay away from people and watch for these symptoms. The important course of the disease that I specifically deal with, and I, you know, we don't want to talk about it, but that's the severity of the illness. Most patients, most folks who come down with this virus regardless if you know you have it or not, it's mm -hmm. a mild course. But the problem is, is that in some patients, about day eight or day nine from what we've seen in the epidemiology of the disease from China, Italy, and here, from day eight or day nine, it can become more severe 
expanding into the lower respiratory tract and causing what we know as pneumonia. And in some cases, severe respiratory failure needing the mechanical ventilator. That's what makes this disease so critical, that severity of the illness. And so if we can upfront prevent transmission, it will not upend and cause all the burden on our healthcare system. Because as Dr. Murthy says, in the worst case, we just don't have enough ventilators and ICU beds to take care of that severe form of illness. Again, most cases are still thought to be mild, but the transmissibility is quite high. Regarding, I just wanted to touch base briefly on the mask issue. I know that, you know, a lot of folks and, you know, no judgment here, everybody went out and bought masks and protective gear because we were all scared. We weren't getting information. We're pretty certain now that unless someone's symptomatic, masks aren't going to be that helpful. And in fact, it's going to make you touch your face more and probably be more likely to spread the disease. And as Dr. Morthy mentioned, you really want to avoid touching your face and touching your you know, eyes and nose. So really, unless you're around a symptomatic person, masks are not going to help. So as a public service announcement, consider donating your mask to your friendly neighborhood doctors and hospitals, because they're the ones who need it the most. Um, we hope that testing becomes more widely available. We'll have a lot more information about the prevalence of the disease. But right now, again, I'd like to stress that the majority of patients are asymptomatic mm -hmm. or mild disease. Hopefully we can quell this before it becomes more severe and in our ICUs. We are seeing an uptick in our intensive care units of respiratory failure. So we do need to keep vigilant and continue social distancing if we can. Thank you, uh, Dr. Pundit, uh, uh, very helpful perspective. And I know there are a ton of questions coming in. We're gonna try to leave some room at the end uh, to ask Dr. Pundit and others a question. Let me just move on uh, now to Dr. Mihir Megani. Uh, Dr. Megani uh, is uh, one of the co-founders. Uh, he really needs no introduction to any HAF uh, type activity. He's uh, one of the visionaries behind starting uh, this organization and one of the co-founders and now serves on the board of directors. Uh, but by his day job, Dr. Megani is a, an emergency room physician, an emergency medicine physician at Kaiser Permanente in the East Bay area of Cal Northern California. He also has special expertise in disaster relief, has served in the federal government in that capacity. Um, we, uh, Mihir, uh, Dr. Megani will now provide some of his experience being on the front lines uh, as patients. He's already gone through a quarantine and will provide some uh, uh, firsthand experience on dealing with when you should, should not uh, be accessing your local emergency room. Dr. Megani. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Dr. Shukla. I'm glad you mentioned my home quarantine. I, I was at home for two weeks and um, I think I drove my uh, wife nuts, but uh, uh, we both survived. Um, I, I'm a, as, I, as you mentioned, I, I'm an emergency physician, and I'd like to share a few things um, with people here to just uh, deepen an understanding of what, what this is. Many people come into the emergency room and say, can I have antibiotics for this infection or for the influenza or flu or virus uh, and cold? So first, you know, I want to just remind everyone that viruses are not bacteria and antibiotics don't do anything. I know there are many people from different countries where colds and flu are treated with what they think are antibiotics, but they do not work. So uh, make sure we understand that difference. Um, 
for most of us, uh, we infections that we normally get, like colds or influenza, the flu, and for most of us who do end up getting exposure to or are infected with the COVID-19 virus, we'll do okay because our immune system's strong. But as uh, Dr. Murthy uh, and Dr. Pundit earlier mentioned, this virus is much more serious than most things we normally encounter. So uh, most of us would be okay, but when you take 100 people or 1,000 people or a whole community, when the number of people who die from it is 100 times worse, you certainly don't want to be in a position where you know someone in your family or someone else who died. That's why this is important. But individually, most of you do not need to panic if you're exposed to or get this. The most important, uh, there are two things I think everyone needs to remember. One is, if you have a family member or a contact um, that, you, that could be exposed who has a weak immune system because they're in chemotherapy or certain medicines that weaken the immune system, such as steroids or other medicines, or they're a very young um, you know, infant that may not have a fully developed immune system, or they have a lot of other medical problems, they are at high risk for, for having complications or dying from this, even though you yourself may not even need to be hospitalized. That's number one. Um, number two, most of what we're doing in society, the social distancing, washing our hands, are things we're doing to prevent this from spreading. In our normal life, do we take all these measures for a common cold? No. Even though you know a cold on a person who's very ill can cause problems. But hopefully we take the good habits that we learn from what's happening here um, and you know, continue washing our hands in the future, covering our mouths when we have a cough and cold and being careful we don't expose someone. Now, when should you come to the emergency room, and then I'll, I'll, I'll end, um, is it, you don't want to be in the emergency room unless you're sick enough that you need medical help that you can't get at home. If you, if you need Tylenol for fever or you need to stay hydrated by drinking fluids, you can do that at home. But if you're in such a bad condition or you, you know somebody who is like a family I think uh, we lost uh, Dr. Megani there. Um, maybe an audio problem. <laughs> so while uh, uh, the moderator works on getting Dr. Megani, Dr. Megani, uh, can we? Can you test? Can we hear you? Yes. I did. I uh, did, did. I get uh, interneted out in the Bay Area. Yes, you're back. Thank you. You go ahead and finish I'm, I'm your not. thoughts. Yep. Where did I leave off? Uh, just uh, the last sentence. Yep. Yep. If you're if you're if, if someone's sick enough that they need other medical care, like they're getting confused or breathing real hard, like and you're worried they can't, um, they're 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 not going to be able to breathe. Um, they're breathing hard enough that they can't speak. You need to get them to the emergency room, but don't go to the emergency room just because you're worried um, that you may have it. Don't go to the emergency room to get a test. Only go there if your symptoms are bad enough that you're going to need other medical help. And remember, in the emergency room, there are going to be people who are sick. You don't want to go there and pick up a germ. All right? Just remember, hospitals are places for care. They're not the places that don't have germs. All germs live in hospitals. Um, what to expect in the next few months? Hard to say. If we all keep social distancing, um, then hopefully this levels off. When this is going to happen is very hard to say. If a few of us get symptoms and we don't take them seriously and we spread them, um, if it spreads to 10, 20, 30 people, it can spread further. And then we'll start getting uh, 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 an increasing incidence of, of, of this and then we'll have problems. Um, thanks for the opportunity, uh, Dr. Shukla. I'll uh, hand it off to you and I hope I didn't go over. 
You did perfectly, Dr. Megani. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll move on to Dr. Rajiv Pandit. Uh, Dr. Pandit is also very active with HAF, serving on the board of directors, and he's been handling the Kashmir uh, portfolio, as uh, many of you probably are aware. Um, by Dr. Pandit's, Dr. Rajiv's day job, he is an ENT surgeon or an ear, nose, throat surgeon, a head, neck surgeon, otolaryngologist, a lot of names for what he does. He's the uh, uh, section chief of uh, otolaryngology at Methodist Dallas Medical Center, obviously in Dallas, Texas. So we've asked Rajiv to provide some insight into the impact of COVID on upper respiratory conditions, the types of things that he sees uh, as an ENT surgeon. Dr. Pandit. Thank you, Asim. Um, uh, I want to just quickly uh, help with some terminology. You heard uh, Dr. Magani talk about a quarantine, um, and then we've also heard in the news a lot about isolation. Uh, so we're getting uh, thrown with a lot of terms in the media, and that can be part of the feeling of uh, helplessness or not having control of this. So uh, really quickly, a quarantine is to separate people that are well uh, from people uh, that may have been exposed but that do not currently have symptoms of any illnesses such as COVID-19. Isolation is to separate a sick person or person who is symptomatic in this case with COVID-19. So it's more restrictive uh, so that person does not spread that uh, disease. Uh, The other term we hear a lot about is uh, pandemic and epidemic. Uh, Pandemic has to do with the, uh, the distribution of a disease whereas epidemic has more to do with the speed of a disease. So uh, conditions that are uh, that spread more rapidly than expected, such as the Ebola outbreak, uh, were an epidemic. Um, and uh, we've had swine flu that was an epidemic. And, uh, and then when it spreads to multiple countries, it becomes a pandemic. So a disease can be both an epidemic and a pandemic. And these uh, definitions are, um, or these labels are placed by the uh, World Health Organization. Um, and there's no very, there's no exact defined criteria. Uh, multitude of factors are determined uh, in this, uh, to make those uh, labels. And that has a lot to do with uh, how resources are allocated around the world. Um, the other, uh, The other thing that I want to touch upon is the importance of hygiene from an ENT perspective. Uh, I can tell you that if the virus does not get into your nose or mouth, or actually even through the eye, you will not get infected. So that's a simple rule to remember. However, most of us do not realize that we touch our faces by one study up to 23 times an hour. So to to limit yourself from touching your face is one of the biggest challenges that we have. Um, But it is proven uh, to uh, prevent the spread of disease. And as Dr. Uh, Lavinia Pundit mentioned earlier, um, people are running out to get masks, but they're touching their face more often. So getting a mask doesn't necessarily help if you're gonna be touching your face. So those are, and washing your hands for 20 seconds is absolutely critical. Uh, I have found it easier to say a mantra, uh, to have a certain saying, to make it easier to go by. And uh, healthcare providers are doing that you know, 20 times a day, 30, 40 times a day. Uh, but it is something that's absolutely critical. You cannot beat washing your hands and not touching your face in order to uh, stay away from this uh, disease. The other thing that I want to deal with is the hype and the infodemic and the um, the uh, anxiety that many of us are 
dealing with. And that'll actually uh, lead into one of our speakers later uh, today, Dr. Kavita Palod. Um, I have, since I deal with ENT, I deal with a lot of people that on a routine basis have a cough, have a shortness of breath or a sore throat or have fatigue or low-grade fever because those, are, those overlap with other conditions such as allergies, which are very big in Dallas, or with uh, sinus infection or even tonsillitis or obstructive sleep apnea or acid reflux, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very important uh, to be, become more self-aware, but also to have a thermometer Check your temperature as opposed to reporting to your physician that you're feeling warm, that you have a fever. I've had a number of people call saying that they have a fever, but they haven't actually checked their temperature. So the more you can be objective about your symptoms and self-aware, the easier it'll be for you to relay these symptoms accurately to other people to help determine whether or not you need to come in to be evaluated or whether or not you even need a test since the tests right now are still in scarce uh, supply. Um, so with that, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to hand it over back to you, uh, Seem. Thank you, Dr. Pandit, uh, for, uh, for that. And again, there are some questions, a lot of questions that are coming in. We'll try to get to them. Uh, but before we have uh, two more very uh, uh, pertinent uh, panelists that I'd like to introduce. First, uh, Dr. Abhay Dandekar. Uh, Dr. Dandekar is a pediatrician in practice at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California, and he's also uh, uh, has served as a pediatric residency and clerkship director uh, there, and also serves as an associate clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of California in San Francisco. I've asked Abhay to join us to provide his expertise on the impact of COVID on children. Uh, I've been seeing many questions about whether it does affect children. Is there some late breaking news uh, that it is affecting them in some way? Um, and just to dispel some of the question, uh, myths and questions that there are on that topic. So Dr. Dandika, please. So thank you so much. Um, I hope everyone can hear me and uh, namaste to everyone on the call. Uh, and I particularly wanna say a, a very um, heartfelt thank you to not only all of our panelists, but to all the frontline providers out there, particularly to those who may be on this call um, who are contributing to that, not only to healthcare in uh, our hospitals and our clinics, but also to all the other basic community services that are still going on under this isolation. I think the take home message from a pediatric perspective, particularly when it comes to COVID-19 and the coronavirus is indeed symptoms tend to be less severe than adults. So in probably the latest uh, series that is just being published in, in pediatrics as we speak, uh, for that matter, that just came out of a series in China, um, about 90% of kids seem to have mild to moderate disease, or for that matter, don't even have symptoms. Um, and that's particularly both good in the sense that children are really not manifesting the same kind of disease uh, symptoms that perhaps adults are, on the other hand, it's a really, really important um, calculus that we all have to make in thinking about um, the fact that children may be a really critical factor in the spread of the disease. There is some new evidence that is coming out thinking about how long the shedding of virus happens. This can be either through nasal secretions um, and particularly for diapered or younger infants and toddlers through stool. So while children may not be um, having the same kinds of symptoms or severity as uh, the adults are, 
Um, it is incredibly important that our kids and particularly our teens who may be even having no symptoms or have mild symptoms really be practicing this entire idea of social distancing. Um, within the pediatric population, within the uh, uh, idea or the population of kids that are out there though, we do know that in fact those who are really, really young, and we think that those of course who are, as Dr. Meghani mentioned, taking medications that might um, compromise their immune system, or for that matter might have chronic diseases. Um, there are kids out there who have significant heart or lung or kidney disease, and other kinds of ailments, these folks very well, these children might be much more vulnerable to significant illness. And that is one thing that is also emerging from some of the literature that's coming out there. One question that arises, well, if, if most kids and, and particularly teens are much less significant in their symptoms, why is that? There's a few quick theories um, on that. And again, the science is really emerging from this. As Dr. Murthy mentioned, we're still learning a lot as we go along. So it could be that um, children have actually already seen many more common versions of coronavirus. P uh, people, there is some thought that there is a, a dysregulation of the immune system, meaning that the immune system has already been um, activated, or for that matter, um, the kinds of receptors that are required in the respiratory tract that adults have that are much more mature may not be that mature um, in children. So there's still a lot of uh, science that we really need to learn about with this, and I'm sure we will as um, things go on. Kind of the, um, the last take-home message when it comes to children, of course, now that um, we're all socially distancing and children are otherwise feeling well, um, this social distancing piece is incredibly important. So hand washing for at least 20 seconds is incredibly effective, and it should be practiced as, as much as possible, avoiding touching the face, we do know that even though there's limited evidence of this, it seems like this is not something that is vertically transmitting, meaning that if there is someone who is pregnant out there, this doesn't seem to be um, actually transmitting now to the um, infant being born, nor is it being transmitted through breast milk. So for all those young moms um, out there who may be uh, breastfeeding, this is something that is still going to be very important for everyone. And of course, being engaged, providing a lot of reassurance, I'm sure that um, as uh, Lavanya will uh, attest to um, really making sure that we're empowering all of these um, young children, how do you talk to those kids, really having that um, ability to now understand when your kids might be anxious. All of us can serve as role models to help empower them. I will say one last thing um, when it comes to particularly teenagers. Um, teenagers, uh, of course, will feel like they're indestructible and they'll feel like they're very, very much um, not at risk. And I think I want to stress, as Dr. Murthy mentioned, that it is incredibly important for us to take, in fact, very drastic measures here very seriously. So when people say social distance, that does not mean having play dates. That means really um, ensuring that our kids, our families are, are staying strictly isolated and trying our best to make sure that that's um, the case. Last but not least, take advantage of, um, if you do need to seek, seek medical attention, of the telemedicine that's out there, of the video medicine that's out there, and interface with your healthcare providers and, and that team by emailing them or phoning them before you head over to an emergency room or to a busy clinic. And with that, I'll, I'll leave it back with uh, Asim's capable hands. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. so much, Abay. Uh, very apropos, I'm, I'm a pediatric urologist, but we needed a real 
doctor, a real pediatrician, uh, to give that view. Uh, so thank you again, Dr. Dandekar. Uh, and I think this is a perfect segue because Dr. Dandekar spoke very much about how we communicate this to the children, how we deal with their stress, their, uh, their concerns. Um, and so Dr. Kavita Palodz Seksaria uh, is a longtime National Leadership Council member and has been an integral contributor to HAF's education portfolio. Uh, Kavita is a clinical psychologist working for Quince Orchard Psychotherapy and is focused on working with couples and families. She also serves on the board of advisors for Man Mukti, which aims to fight mental health stigma in the South Asian community. So Kavita is going to offer tools for managing stress and anxiety during and beyond the current crisis, because as you, you've heard a lot about the science of it, but we really need to learn how to deal with it in our communication uh, within our families and beyond. So uh, uh, Kavita. Yeah. So. Sorry, I was trying to unmute, but thank you, Asim. Um, so you guys all got a lot of information. You've probably been getting a lot of information for a long time. Um, and that's created probably a lot of big feelings. Work has been disrupted. Your whole life has been disrupted. And it's really tempting at times to want to push those things away. The anxiety, the fear, the um, deep sense that this is incredibly unfair and uh, really, really difficult. And so my first tip of three is try not to push that away and just be okay with it. Be okay with the fact that you're feeling big things and this is really hard. Validate those feelings for yourself and try to validate them for others as well. It's really tempting to, to go down the, well, at least I'm not, or at least I don't have to deal with and create a lot of guilt for yourself. And I really want to encourage everyone to avoid that and, and to be okay um, with the fact that this really, really sucks for pretty much everyone. Um, as, as you accept and acknowledge that this is hard, you'll actually find that your feelings are easier to, to let pass and, uh, wash over you like waves. You'll feel your resilience kick in cause we all have it. And hopefully you'll find that this, uh, instead of pushing them away, but accepting it is what puts you in a frame of mind where you can start understanding what the small silver linings are, what the small positive things are that you can do for yourself. And as you do this, I want everyone to really understand what can and can't be controlled. So as you know, your lives are being disrupted, maybe you can't go to work or maybe work is really different right now, try to find a way to create routines for yourself. If you've been practicing yoga, mindfulness, pranayam, then it's more important than ever to keep, keep those things going. They really are wonderful for stress and anxiety and are really important at these times. So that's one way to take care of your physical and mental and spiritual health. And you need to consider how to keep all of those things intact, make sure you're eating well, make sure you're getting exercise and make sure you're doing the things that you do have control over uh, at a time when it feels like everything is chaotic and really difficult to predict. 
Um, and of course, find ways to connect with friends and family, even as you're social distancing. We are very lucky to have FaceTime and Google Hangouts and everything at our disposal. So please find ways to use them and, you know, try in the name of finding the small things to be positive and hopeful about reconnect with people that maybe you've lost uh, touch with. Um, understand what you can't control also. That's an important part of this. And that means that you should probably find ways to limit your intake of news, which is built to be really sensationalist and get a rise out of you. Um, I know we're all on those family uh, WhatsApp groups that are really difficult. Uh, maybe give yourself an hour a day to take in the news. It's really, it feels like it's changing really rapidly, but everything that's essential, you can probably boil down if you just give yourself a limited amount of time during the day to look at that. Just try to be in the moment, try to avoid catastrophizing about everything gonna, that's going to happen. And my last point is, please understand that there are so many access, so many resources that you can access. If you do find that your anxiety is really difficult to control, that your thoughts are racing, that maybe you're having physical non-COVID uh, symptoms of stress, such as headaches and body aches that are otherwise explained, or feeling really depressed, um, it's a really good time to reach out to a mental health provider. Um, a lot of telehealth restrictions have been lifted. So this is a great time to reach out for that type of help. And if that feels like a higher level than you're ready for, then to look for apps like the Breathe app, which I highly recommend to help you just get some structure to managing your anxiety. Above all else, be kind to yourself, be kind to the people around you, and uh, really understand that we'll all get through this. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Kavita. Uh, very um, important words to keep in mind as we navigate uh, this situation that none of us have ever experienced before. It's uh, really a wartime scenario that we're all dealing with in, in our own different ways. Um, it is now 10 p.m. Uh, just in the interest of time, I wanted to get two questions in um, that have been coming up over and over. And I'm very sorry to the audience uh, that we're not going to be able to answer all of these questions. Um, one question, if we have, if anyone has expertise, is the question of takeout food. We're doing a lot of takeout. Some people are. You can't go to restaurants. Anything about salads, vegetables, foods from restaurants that could be spread through workers, any type of precaution that we should be taking in that. Perhaps uh, Mihir uh, might know something about this or if any of the panelists. Um, and the other question, just so the panelists are ready, is about the use, and maybe Abhay knows this, about ibuprofen versus Tylenol uh, if you have a fever uh, through COVID. And maybe Mihir is good for that. So let me just, if those two questions can be answered, and then um, uh, we'll see if we have time if the moderator, uh, Samir, allows me one more question. Depends how quickly we can do these two. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, this uh, the question about um, you know, restaurant food. I think in the chance of getting infected, was that pretty much what we're trying to get at? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you know. Uh, again, um, you, you don't know what's coming down the line. I think most, uh, you know, I think we can safely say that most people in any industry that we're going to come in contact with are going to 
you know, be clean and, and hygienic, but you just don't know. So we, everyone should take, you know, their own precautions with anything they're coming in contact with touching uh, outside of their, their home. Um, so take, you know, take hand gel with you, wash your hands. If you're touching something else and then coming back home, make sure you wash well. If you're going to be in an, uh, in, in an area with other people um, and there are people coughing or something like that, then you want to, you know, stay at least six feet away from those people. Uh, those are precautions to take. And then as far as uh, fever management, if you're, if you have a fever and you're uncomfortable, and, you know, talk to your doctor about what's appropriate to take because every medicine has a side effect. So I don't want to just say that everyone should take Tylenol um, or ibuprofen. Um, and um, right now, uh, the CDC does not have a recommendation on either of those two medicines. The World Health Organization has told people to avoid ibuprofen, but that's not because there have been um, a lot of scientific studies on it. It's just that there are a few observations on it. So, um, you know, check with um, the CDC website or your personal healthcare provider to get up-to-date information on either of those. Um, and I'll, I'll also just jump in and just, if I can, should I just mention, talk about quinine for a second? Uh, there's no recommendation right now on the CDC website um, about that. If someone's sick enough that they're going to be in the hospital, then the doctors there will decide the best medicine to treat you with, but it's not something you should just go and try to buy right now. Yeah. Thank you, Mihir. Uh, I, I think uh, Paul Offit, uh, who's a very well-known uh, pediatric uh, infectious disease uh, physician here at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, has made the important point that, you know, if you're at home and, you're, and your fever is mild, to continue, just don't treat it with any Tylenol or ibuprofen. Let the fever sort of, that's just your body fighting the, fighting the infection, and it doesn't need to be suppressed. If you must suppress it, then Tylenol may be better. But again, call your doctor and, and, and deal with this on an individual basis. Uh, that's not something that we want to give advice to at this moment. Um, I think uh, um, there was one more question that had come up. Yes. Is there a particular type of soap uh, that we should be using versus alcohol uh, for washing things, uh, washing the counter? Uh, does anyone have any uh, idea on that, Lavanya or anyone else? Um, uh, and Abhay, feel free if you have any directions from your hospital uh, on that, on what, which one is better. This is Abhay, um, <clears throat> and if everyone can hear me, I think what many are recommending is um, certainly that the time, <clears throat> excuse me, the time of how long you wash is far more important of a factor. So. You using regular soap, um, many are, are uh, labeled as antibacterial soaps, but certainly soap and antibacterial soap to wash for at least 20 seconds and really, really um, be careful about that. So um, for kids, adults, um, singing uh, some sort of song or mantra, uh, which is a great idea that Dr. Bundy um, came up with, is probably far more important. Those who are in the healthcare um, field um, or those who are coming from um, frontline areas or they're actually still uh, working, they're not isolating, then making sure that you also use those um, antibacterial soaps um, to in fact um, wash uh, thoroughly and wash for at least 20 seconds. There is some um, uh, literature to support that this is actually much better um, than actually washing with or just a quick antibacterial um, hand rub that's alcohol-based, that is, the actual using of soap is, is superior than just simply the alcohol-based rubs. 
With regard to alcohol, it's important to have at least 60% alcohol. Uh, many people, there's a lot of home remedies on how to make your own mask, how to make your own hand sanitizer. Uh, some people have recommended on WhatsApp and social media to use uh, vodka. Um, that won't work because most vodka is not 60% uh, alcohol. It's 40% or less. But uh, interestingly, some distilleries are actually switching over to making hand sanitizer now. Um, and uh, some even some uh, manufacturers of cologne and perfume are using their uh, factories to switch over. Um, so soap is the best. Hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol and rubbing for 20 seconds uh, is also uh, helpful. And, and uh, you know, I, I just can't help but notice a, a young man uh, or a young lady, a high school student wants to do some volunteer work uh, delivering groceries uh, for people who can't get out during this time and was asking the best way of protecting him or herself. And I think what we just heard uh, is crucial in that way of continuing to wash your hands constantly uh, and be very careful and make sure that whichever organization you volunteer with with uh, is taking all of these uh, uh, risks very seriously to ensure that uh, someone can do the type of volunteer work that you know we certainly admire you wanting to do that. So with that, uh, I think I'm going to uh, bring this uh, discussion uh, to. Oh, um, can anyone hear me? Hello. Okay, sorry. I I was told that I might be out. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm doing. I'm going to bring this uh, to a conclusion. Then I want to once again repeat the legal disclaimer that nothing being said on this call should constitute medical advice. That you should consult with your physician and with local recommendations as to what to do. Stay informed. Reliable information at cdc.gov, uh, the WHO website, and of course your local government entities. Uh, I want to thank uh, Mihir, Abhay, Rajiv, Kavita. Uh, of course, Dr. Abhivek Murthy uh, and the staff of HAF, uh, Samir Kalras, Shukla, for uh, organizing uh, the webinar and all the other staff that has been involved with ensuring that this was spread uh, widely. We had a record number of participants today. And with that, I want to say namaste, healthy. And Lavanya, Dr. Lavanya, who was also on the call, he just dropped off. So namaste, keep calm, and stay healthy.